Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Bobby Stuckey on the show today, Fresca Food and Wine. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Hi. So you live in Colorado now, but uh, you started your career in restaurants in Arizona? Yep. Yes. Started busting tables. It'll be 30 years this August. Wow. Because you don't look that old. I mean, you know. Well, I, was, I was somewhat young. You're the, yeah, I was uh, in high school, you know, punk rock, 1983. Yeah. Busting tables. And still busting tables. <laughs> but you're the boss now. You had some early mentors in the game? Yeah, I really did have some early mentors. You know, going back to like even someone I bust tables for in the mid '80s, a guy named Tom Kaufman. Uh, uh, and you can find mentors all all along the way, and I hope everyone does. And uh, someone like that, Eric Calderon at the Little Nell Hotel, phenomenal. I mean, I still think about what he and his management team did for me at the Little Nell, and I use that every day, also. And so you you started in Arizona, but then you ended up moving to, to Colorado to work at the Nell in Aspen. Yes, yeah, so that was my first um, journey into Colorado. I went to work at the Little Nell, started off as the assistant sommelier there, and and uh, really Eric Calderon, the GM of the hotel, and and the food and beverage director Connie Thornburg really uh, were great for me. They gave me a great platform to 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 learn to work and and to under, understand hospitality. And, and that was a pretty big wine program. It was. And, you know, and they also really encouraged growth. You know, that was uh, in the mid the mid 90s. Um, and they were all about going after the grand award list and, and building depth. And, and to be honest, I think it was easier back then. <clears throat> the price of entry was sure it was expensive, but for a, a hotel or a restaurant to build a wine program wasn't as crazy astronomical as it is now. Yeah, I agree with you. It seems like that's really changed. Yeah, I think, you know, from about 2000 on, it just became a whole different game. Like the the benchmarks of a big list are just the, the, the goals have moved on those benchmarks in terms of price points, it seems like. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you used to be able to get a catalog from uh, Chateau and Estates and pretty much reorder vintage Bordeaux, and it, it was, while it was expensive, it wasn't out of control and it had age on it and it had age on it it really took a lot of pressures off the restaurants and uh one of the things that as that's 
those kind of holdings of old wine have gone away, it's kind of pushed restaurants to either aging it themselves, which is quite expensive, or just not doing it. You exactly. Know, and, and kind of maybe moving towards cocktails or beer or simple wine lists or something like yeah. that. I mean, there's a lot more well-curated wine lists now that are more, may I say, uh, abbreviated and really tight, but with a lot of exciting stuff. And, th and that's a hard job to do. And we've got some people around the U.S. doing a great job doing that. But seeing those lists where you could go in and say, God, I want to drink some some older Barolo, that's, that's sometimes hard to do. Even in Italy, I feel like that's hard to do. Oh, for you sure. Know, like with real age, you know what I mean? Like for sure. 80s, 70s, like 2000, you can find. But, yeah. You know. For a couple of reasons. One, there's not a lot of storage space over there in Italy. And sometimes it's not well stored. I mean, how many times do you have an older bottle of Brunello down in Tuscany and you're like, God, I want to romanticize it that this is great. But <laughs> right, right. Let's be honest. There's a couple hundred degree days that summer. Right. And it, they kept it in the kitchen. Yeah. Hey, so let's talk about the Aspen scene. I mean, what was that like? What was it like working in Aspen? Well, well Aspen's a lot different than Boulder. I mean, uh, Aspen is a community that is a very international spotlight community. So it was great guests uh, from all over the world. And sure, I think everyone likes to focus on the, the maybe the the elitism of, of Aspen and how expensive it is. But there's a lot of facets that we for, we don't talk about Aspen that makes it so exciting as a sommelier. One, <clears throat> sure, you have people going there skiing or Aspen Food and Wine Classic in the summer, but there's also a lot of intellectual stuff that goes on there. The um, Aspen Institute, you know, to be able to have, uh, you know, great minds from around the world, if it be a physicist, if it be a uh, classical musician, uh, the 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 summer music festival in Aspen. There's all these things that add to a really interesting fabric as as guests, which I no one talks about, and that's something I really really love there. And what was a normal sale for you at that time? I mean, back then, what was what was normal to sell? Uh, wine wise, yeah, um, was it the Cab you know, or the Merlot the, You know, it was definitely a time period where. Uh, in that mid '90s to late '90s, you're starting to see the international spotlight on these small California producers. Back then, maybe if it was Sinequinon or William Salampino or, or Colt California Cabernet, um, and that was when it seemed like the wine buyer, the, the 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 wine buyer, really started paying attention to what journalists were saying. If it be Robert Parker or Tanzer. And it, that's where the job of the sommelier changed because you had to be able to really listen to the vibe that the guest was talking to you about, about their expertise and, and, and decipher that. Like, sure, you might really be into Old Ridge Cabernet, but if this person's coming in and you, you can tell that they're talking to you about these other blockbuster style Cabernets, it doesn't matter how much you love that Ridge Cabernet, which was a more, and still is a more older school, um, moderated style. You had to listen to that and, and really see where that guest was coming. You kind of seeing people come in with different knowledge, knowledge streams at that time, maybe based on what they're reading. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, now look at it, people can just pull it up on their, their, their iPhone. But back then that, 
there was an interesting time period where as a sommelier, you saw the wine buyer change where they were out looking for that knowledge. They were out looking uh, for their periodical mentor, you know, um, beyond just the wine spectator magazines, you saw people really, if they were really into reading tans or really into reading uh, Robert Parker. And then fast forward to today, people are coming in, which is exciting, I think, and, and a great challenge for sommeliers. People are really coming in with a lot of information. You can have a guy who's an orthopedist that, that really studies Burgundy and really spends a lot of time doing that. I don't, th I don't think we had that as much 20 years ago. I mean, there were some fanatical people, but there's a lot of people that exchange information on the web. And, and I think that kind of started in the mid to late nineties. Did you foresee it going in that direction or was that as kind of a surprise to you? How many people ended up really getting interested in wine? Um, you know, it kind of, it's, it, it kind of happened as we went. Yeah. And because I'm someone who was in the profession while it was happening, it didn't catch me totally off guard. But I think if you would have gone back to 15 years ago and say, hey, you're going to walk on the floor now on a Saturday night and you've got this much information, I don't think you would have ever expected it. And and maybe selling kind of more niche items yeah. from Northern Italy or, yeah. you know, that people may not have heard of 15 years ago, even the Great Friday, let alone the producer. Oh, for sure. I mean, and also... You live in New York, so it's a little bit different. But for people from the West Coast, I mean, the wine landscape's changed a lot. What do you see? Uh, well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I'm I'm really good friends with Shelley Lindgren at A16. She's great. Poof, wow, awesome. And I think we forget. Um, okay, let's say when I left the French Laundry 10 years ago to move to Boulder, if you wanted to go out in San Francisco and drink Italian wine... It was hard to do. Is that true? For sure. The North Beach scene was still like kind of cheesy. Yeah. And it was just, you didn't see that much um, Italian wine thought. I mean, you could go to Aquarello, mm -hmm. drink some, some, some Barolo with age on it, but you didn't have these curated Italian lists. And the sommeliers then, like the group that we were all hanging out with last night, sure, a lot of them didn't drink Italian wine then. And Shelley really put the pedal to the metal and that really changed that city. And, you know, Los Angeles is starting to get there. But really, if you think about 10 years ago, you could drink Great Burgundy, Great Rhone, Great Riesling in San Francisco. But drinking uh, brainy Italian wine wasn't something that they did there. And that's changed a lot. And that's that's been really exciting. And we lost one to their team, too, with the David Lynch defection. You know yeah. what I mean? On we, the, we, on the we added it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's kind of swapped, you know, sent one over. I, I just saw his, uh, I just went and saw him at St. Vincent two weeks ago. He's such a great guy. He's one of the one and only. And so you're, you eventually decided, hey, uh, I'm going to leave Aspen. I'm going to go work at the French Laundry, which is a, a little known restaurant in Yonville that no one's ever heard of and is not at all lauded or respected i'm kidding because obviously it's the opposite of that the most one of the most respected restaurants in the world you were a sommelier there for a number of years and you also called up uh, a guy named richard betts and got him your old job yeah what was that what was that time like for you man i know it's been a while but what, what was that period what was going on 
Well, you know, I didn't really think, I mean, I loved working at the Little Nell. And then this opportunity came up to go to the French Laundry. And uh, I thought, you know, I, I'm up for a challenge. Um, and that was, what a, what a great challenge because I, I, a, lot of, a lot of people don't realize that uh, the old French Laundry list was all California. Is that true? I with, did not know that. With a small amount of like Negos Burgundy, but I mean like five selections but it was really a California-based list. And Bouchon, which uh, when you took that position at that time, you, you also wrote the wine list for Bouchon. And at that time, the Bouchon was only California. That's right. So um, my job, it was so exciting. My job was um, to be the person to put the French Laundry wine list on the same um, page as the, as the kitchen. Right. an all-world, world-class list. So it was really exciting. I, I got the, the opportunity to go in there and uh, to write an all-world wine list. So here, all of a sudden, uh, they never had Austria. They never had Germany. Uh, they never had Italy. They never had much Burgundy, uh, Rome, Spain, you name it. Sure. And that and that food was was starving for it, you know, especially how the menu was then and st still is that that first part of the menu is so white wine and a lot of maybe slightly off dry white wine friendly like, which we didn't have access to until we started doing that because there's not a lot of that's made in made in california yeah um, yeah that's not their skill set um and it was great so when i took that position you know i wanted to make sure the french or the little Nell had uh someone great there and so I told Eric Calderon, you got to call this guy, Richard Betts down in Tucson. He's like, really? I said, oh my God, he's going to knock your socks off. And, but did you guys know each other well at that point? Or <clears throat> yeah, was that we, just kind of a faith thing or? No, we, we, had, we first became friends in Flagstaff, Arizona, probably the most non-sexy restaurant town. Um, he used to come into a place that I was like the assistant wine buyer waiter at. Okay. In like 1993 or 94. And uh, it was uh, this little restaurant in Flagstaff, Arizona. And he and Mona, which is his wife, back then his girlfriend, they would come in every couple weeks when they had a little scratch and buy a bottle of wine and have dinner. And I got to know him. We became really good friends. Go mountain biking together. And, oh, okay. Yeah. So you were buddies? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I didn't, that didn't come out in the Betts interview. Yeah. He, he squashed that part. Oh, did he? I was like, well, I mean, why did he call you? And he was like, I don't know. I think he just put seven numbers together and he dialed him <laughs> on the phone. I mean, it was really like, he didn't say like, he, there was no, you know, and then Bobby tapped me for this great job, like out of nowhere, like Publisher's Clearinghouse. <laughs> oh, look, there's a guy with a huge check outside for you. I don't know. It's strange. I never understood. <laughs> he said, you guys went on one bike race. I'm like, you know, I've been on bike races with a lot of guys. I don't remember getting a call later for <laughs> Yeah, strange. And you know, now I see. Now yeah. I understand. So there was a history yeah. of him coming in. Yeah, which he now conveniently forgets. And all these. Oh, he had a lot of know. sombra, man. That'll affect him. <laughs> yeah. bets. Yeah, we call it clota bets. Oh, dude, I love that. <laughs> he could make a lot of money on that. I think. You know what I mean? Oh, a little clota bets t-shirts. <laughs> hey, and so I mean, what was it like working with Keller? I mean, he's one of the most famous chefs in the world. Um. Well. That was a different era for sure. He and I had the same schedule. So, you know, uh, it was, it was fantastic. I mean, that, and that team there, people hate hearing this, but 
it was a pretty easy job. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, the hours were hard. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it managerially, I mean, it's a great like CEO corporate culture um, book could be written. Because at that time period, everybody knew why they were there. You, you all made a sacrifice to be there. If it be a front of the house person or back of the house person, uh, maybe financially you made a sacrifice or uh, to your loved one, you made a sacrifice because the hours are really intense. Um, but everyone was there for a reason from the gl- glass polisher all the way up to the chef de cuisine. And uh, it was it was great. I mean, Thomas uh, had a station. Uh, it was great. I mean, it was really, really inspiring. And he really got us to the point of saying, okay, this is what the team is here to do. And he had a really, I mean, it was exciting. I mean, I think about like my last night there, you had Corey Lee on fish. Okay. Right, sure. Grant Ackett's had just left. Got it. You had Renee Redzepi had was working in the kitchen. I didn't know that. Uh, Lachlan, my my business partner, was working there. You had Eric Zebold. I mean, just a great. I mean, I think Tim Hollinsworth might have been like uh, he might have been like on cheese at that point. I mean, mm-hmm. it was like a such a powered back team, and everyone knew why they were there. And you think Keller was or is today? really good at communicating that vision or no? I mean, I mean, how did that come across? Why did everyone know? Did he set that forth to you? In oh, I think so. Very I mean, clear? It, I've only met the men one time. I, I'm really asking. Oh yeah. I, I think know. for sure he knew how to communicate that in his style that we all knew what we were doing to the guy who raked the dishwasher, who would come out and rake the pea gravel of the parking lot. I, swear, I mean, those little details that you don't think of, um, he got that guy. And that wasn't like one of the other managers telling the dishwasher how to do the pea gravel so beautifully. That was Thomas going, like, Let, let's do this really nice. Let's rake this pea gravel really nice. And uh, and that was, I, he doesn't get enough credit for that. And I mean, where do you think that came from, like his desire to make it nice. I mean, did he ever talk to you about that? Like his own inspirations? I think, I think Thomas, um, and I'm going to speak for him. I mean, one of the great things about Thomas is it wasn't always Thomas Keller as you know it. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's a guy who, and he's, he's really open about this. Like, and, and I feel very lucky to have had these experiences. He lost restaurant Raquel. Sure. Then he moved to Los Angeles and uh, got fired from Checkers Hotel. Oh, okay. I didn't know about that. Yeah. And then, yeah. Now let's let's just. Can someone find the F and B director that fired? Yeah, Scott? what's that guy doing now? I mean, he's working at a Popeyes. This is like you know, totally yeah. ordering three burgers. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I would love to meet that guy and go. Uh, so, what were you thinking? <laughs> so, you know, you just didn't have any talent. You know, I mean, you talk know, can about. Can you imagine? It. He he's probably like. Playing cards with the guy who traded Babe Ruth. I mean, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're all together. Um, but so he had, he got fired from Checkers. He was living at Peter Michael's guest house, doing catering, peddling some olive oil, trying to put together the French laundry. And uh, 
So there was a lot of, I, there was a lot of, I guess you'd call it failure before he got to be where he is. And because of that, I think that made him such a, a better leader and a better chef and a, he really understood what he was doing. I mean, no one talks about that, but that's, that really added to the experience. Did that resonate with you when you yourself uh, met some challenges in passing the Master Sommelier exam? Because it was a little bit there for you. Did you have that? I mean, did you kind of bro down on that with him? You're like, yeah, I kind of feel like this is difficult for me and I feel stronger getting through it. Yeah, and, and Thomas definitely pushes you to go is after that true? That. Yeah, I mean, he's like, he's a competitive guy. If, mm-hmm. if he has Bobby working for him, he wants Bobby to push himself. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's the thing is like, the MS program um, was a challenge for myself. It wasn't because I wanted my resume to look better. It didn't, I already had a great job. Yeah. I was one director of the French Laundry. I mean, two great jobs in yeah. a row. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't need the MS program to do that. The MS program was my own personal journey. And a, a lot of people used to give me a hard time. Like, they're like, uh, Bobby, uh, you keep failing. Why don't you just walk away? Right. You'd won a James Beard Award, no one. You're at the French Laundry. Why don't you just like quietly quit doing that MS deal? Because you were kind of the Susan Lucci of the the MS program oh my for God. for a second there for a long second, you know, and uh, and I was like, wait a second, I'm not going to quit something because someone tells me I should. I'm going to do it because I want that challenge, and it, I think it made me a better sommelier. Well, for one reason, if you have to study that theory, pass that theory exam twice, you're going to be even stronger because you you know what you're up against. So when you go into, they call it resetting, when you have to give up your parts and start again from scratch. Oh, okay, okay. And uh, it made me a, a stronger person to have to do that. So you have to take all of the parts of the exam again. So what you do is, let's, let's say if, um, let's say a, someone right here, a friend of ours, uh, passes tasting. They have two more visits at the exam to pass theory and service. Got it. If they don't, they have to what's called reset. And then you have to give up those parts and go back to square one. It's a really humbling experience. It's It sucks. And I remember the day I, I had to give up my parts, um, it was interesting. There was a, a not to be named MS came out and he, all he had to do is get through service. And he came out and stayed with me and worked with me at the French laundry to kind of get honed up on his, his service skills. Oh, to kind of help each other out. You kind of, yeah. yeah. And he passed and I failed and had to give up my parts. And I was just like, so, I mean, it was deflating. And then, uh, <clears throat> At that time, you could go take it in London. So like, uh, I just said, okay, I'm just gonna, I took two weeks off and then went right back to study. And my wife's like, what, are we doing this again? And um, went back, got service and theory again. And then it took me a year and, uh, to get, get through tasting. But uh, yeah. But I you think, did do it. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. You didn't give up. You're there and and you, you pass the MS, you got it. And then you make a decision to get closer to your wife's family in Colorado. Yeah. So Lachlan and I knew we wanted to do a restaurant. Of course, you look at the San Francisco because you're living there. 
we kind of we briefly looked at places like Portland and other spots, but lifestyle wise, and uh, Danette's mom had passed away when we were at the laundry, and her dad uh, was living in Golden, and her, and her brother and sister live out there too. Um, and we thought, you know, this is a tough business. Um, let's live close to him, and then we can, you know, build a CM and things like that. And uh, Dick is his name. I, I would think I'd see a lot more of Dick than I do. When we see him, it's great. But I thought I'd see him like in the restaurant, like, like once like, a week. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. And it's maybe once a month or twice a month. But uh, so we decided to move out there. And and really, Lachlan and I looked at Denver, but lifestyle wise, we we just resonated with Boulder more. And, and this was someone that had worked, as you said, on the line at the French Laundry yeah. that you believed in. And you're like, hey, we could go be a team together. Yeah. But what you did was very different uh, because instead of building a global list, you, you went more regional. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we have a little bit of other stuff on the list. I mean, there's a little bit of a small amount of California. There's a little Burgundy. It's funny. We really think as a wine team uh, about Austria more than we do the rest of Italy for white wine. Like if you if you're in Friuli, and you drink thirteen and a half fourteen percent alcohol, Colio Friulano, that resonates and has a more of a through line tether than Vahau Gruner than it does Suave from next door in the Veneto. I can see that, and uh, so we do have a fair amount of Austria wine on there because you know Friuli was for I don't know small time period four hundred years part of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. And I think that the cuisine there resonates with those wines also. That makes a lot of sense. So we, we definitely are, we, th we always say we, we're, we think of Friuli first, Northern Italy second, and then the rest of the world, so. Did you find that that was somewhat unique going regional at that time in, a, in an era where people are doing a little bit more like pan-Italian? Uh, yes, uh, uh, it was interesting. I'm looking at the A16 book over here. Yeah, there you go. They opened the same, they, we opened within a few months of each other. You told me one time you looked at that space. At one oh point. yeah, I like did. You and almost then, opened in that spot. Well, I, I wasn't as like, I didn't, not a, um, uh, a visionary like Shelly. Like Shelly saw that space and made it great. Mm -hmm. Like I saw that space and like, turned around and started sprinting <laughs> the other way. I mean, like, I didn't no have, way. I mean, it just, it was really dark and closed in and she added her juju to it, which is, it's been phenomenal. Well, the sky skylight in the back yeah. really opens it up. I think all yeah. the way, all the way in the back. Yeah. It's beautiful. It is a long kind of, yeah. Like a uh, train station kind of length. Yeah. You and know. she, she has great energy in there, but, uh, we opened the same time period and, uh, you know, she did Campania and we did Friuli. So we always joke that we're like cousins. Yeah. And uh, there wasn't, especially in Colorado, there was nothing like that. No one like, I mean, I remember our first wait staff were, uh, were so shell-shocked because, you know, it's interesting. If you go to France and you go live in Paris for a year or two, you still don't ever feel like you're, like a Parisian expert, mm -hmm, right? Because, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. but Italy, if you go to Tuscany for your um, honeymoon for a week, sure. 20 years later, you still think you're an Italian expert. And why do you think that is? Do you think that's because the bar is somewhat low? Like that's the people around you is the, like if you went to Tuscany, that was kind of a big deal. Whereas maybe it's more obvious because of the institutions that 
France has all this culture or, I mean, why do we, why do we, I think we think resonate that, with Italy more because Italy lets you, mm-hmm, they uh-huh. open the door. They, they they're, they're ho- ho- I mean, if, if it's amazing, like Italian people let that door in. So what happens though, is you become Italy, people don't realize that Italy is so diversified. So if you go to Tuscany on a trip and then Rome on a trip, that's what you think Italy is. And then you go eat at a Friolano restaurant. You're kind of a little fussy. Yeah. At first, you're like, well, what's going on? Like, what's Frico? Right, 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 right. Well, what is this? And uh, so at first, when we first opened, it was really hard on the wait staff to try to communicate to people, yes, you're in an Italian restaurant, but it's a Friolano restaurant. And that was really, and we worked really hard to make sure our staff understood that culture inside and out. You know, and and w- what worked for you? I mean, one of the things that seems so amazing about your place is that you would take people there. Your staff, you take like the whole staff there. Yeah, five, I, five times we've taken closed the restaurant, taken the whole staff. So I mean, we've taken a dishwasher that once he had uh, the ability to uh, have citizenship, we took a dishwasher who had never been on an airplane before to Friuli. How, how many screams? Like uh, oh, which is he there. had a lot of rosaries. So he was, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Feeling those roses, a couple mescals. He was like, a little clo of bets. Yeah, you're like, Bobby, or you're like, uh, Richard, I got a job for you. Dude. Yeah. I need a doctor. We need we need to help him Dr. out Dr. Sombra needs to yeah. uh, come make a house call. But, um, so we did that and we still have people over there often. So like this year we had someone work at Ronco de Nemitz for harvest. We had uh, a sous chef over there uh, last month documenting a bunch of dishes for a dinner we were doing. So we always try to get people over there with us because they need to understand what Friuli is about. And and do you find locally that the understanding of that is 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 built? I mean, it, uh, my understanding is you run popular restaurants. Uh, people are digging it or? You know, it's really, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel so gratified, like uh, how many people now know of Friuli through Boulder, Colorado. Yes. I mean, we have a document we sent out that if you, if if someone called me and they're like, Hey Bobby, we're going to Friuli. And I email them this document we, we did. Um, it really lets someone get a three to a five or a week vacation done in Friuli. No hitches, like where to have coffee at a certain time, where to eat on Tuesday, where to eat pesce crudo at the mare, where to eat Frico. And uh, so now like we have a community that really loves going, that have gone there. It's great. We just did a, the, the kind of our touchstone restaurant is a place called La Subida. It's in uh, Cor- outside of Cormans in Friuli in the Colio. And we had that family come to a dinner with us at Frosca. It was like the, the pinnacle of what we've done like have these guys come and do a menu with us. And it was just wild to see the dining room that night of people that were had on their calendar to go there or had already gone there. It was wild. And I was like, I would have never thought nine years ago, I would fill a whole dining room of people that have either were going that year or had already been in the last couple of years too, too freely into this restaurant. It seems like one of the things you did was realize that, you know, if you just stayed in the dining room in Colorado wasn't going to work. So you had to get out, take the staff to trips to Italy, but also work with other restaurants and do 
dinners. Like, mm -hmm. you know, go to SPQR, do a dinner there. Go to 11 Madison Park, do a dinner there. Um, has that been helpful for you in kind of like building that culture of frugally lovers in America? Oh, for sure. And that, and, and also having them out to see us. I mean, mm -hmm. it's great for us to have these guest chefs, um, you know, once a quarter come do something with us at, at Frosca because at the end of the day, we want, um, we want Colorado. I, mean, I guess we're in Boulder, but we're part of the Denver, Denver metro area. Have them have this access to maybe a chef that they didn't get a chance to go to on their last trip to New York, or they're not sure. going to New York for a while. So if you're a young culinarian, you're a line chef, you know, we try to make it as affordable as possible so you could take your night off from a great restaurant in Denver and come up even as a line chef and eat the food of Daniel Hume or Matthew Acarino or, or whoever we have in there. And that's really important. And it's really helped us grow as a restaurant too. And you've had a history of developing uh, wine talent as well at the restaurant. I mean, there have been quite a few notable people have come through helping you on the wine side at the restaurant. Um, I know you have obviously a love of wine and you worked as a sommelier, but what else do you think has allowed you to, in a venue that's, uh, you know, has a national profile, but isn't maybe the first things a young sommelier thinks of doing like, Hey, I'm going to move to Boulder and work with Italian wine. Like what, what are the attributes do you think lend uh, so many successes to what you've done on the wine side with people? Well, we, we have been really lucky. We've had some great, just fantastic people come through our program. Fit B, <clears throat> Jesse Becker. I mean, obviously Dustin Wilson. Sure, of EMP. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just phenomenal, phenomenal. Uh, Sir Lacero. There's a lot of people that have come through, um, <clears throat> but I don't think it's. Um, I think it's a combination of a couple things. One, it, it was so hard for me to get through the MS. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's easier for me to coach now. Sure. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then also, I don't think we are dogmatic about. Okay, you're going to come here and become an MS mm -hmm. or you're expected or it's all laid out for you. But there's an encouraging environment that if you want to do that, you can do it. Mm -hmm. But it also has to be a self-starter. I think we've been really lucky to have a lot of self-starters come through too. I mean, <clears throat> you also get those people that come through who don't succeed where they, they think, oh, I'm working at Frosca. I'm just going to instantly pass my advanced level. No, mm -hmm. you, at the end of the day, it takes people's inner drive to yeah. Just because you get accepted to Harvard doesn't mean you're getting your Nobel. Or yeah, whatever. exactly. You do something. Yeah. So I mean, I think part of it is our environment. One thing we do do is uh, Lachlan. You know, Lachlan doesn't get enough credit for this, but he's a chef that's way into wine. Is that true? I didn't know that. <sighs> it's not. You know, I mean, the joke is, I don't know if you heard people saying this yesterday. Where's the collector? That's the joke of like what Raj. And Eric Rails back and Dustin, that's what we all call Lachlan. Oh, okay. So he's a chef that's like w really into wine. Because that's actually kind of rare. Super rare. I mean, a lot of people have an interest, but don't really follow it up. Maybe because they don't have the time or money. Yeah. Like on the chef side. Yeah. And, and, and it's hard for chefs to say, hey, I want to like really respect what the front of the house is doing and get to know what they're doing. So Lachlan and I have this approach like, you know, we, we will buy wine that has nothing to do with our program so people can blind taste. 
Oh, okay, okay. So they're, it's, they get a sponsored tasting group out of us. Got it. You know, and that, I, I think that helps a lot too. Because it's expensive to study, to hone your palate, to become a great taster. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is. Yes. I mean, I think that's one of the big barriers to entry for younger people who weren't part of your generation, my generation, where things were just kind of open all the time and the yeah. economy was booming and yeah. things were just happening. You yeah. know what I mean? Now it's a little bit like, well, that costs a lot of money and I don't see the bottles open. You yeah. know what I mean? For young guys, I think. I think it's difficult. I yeah. talk to a lot of people who have not tried certain things. I'm like, oh, oh. And I try not to say it in a way that's like kind of shocking, but I'm always sort of surprised. But then I realize, well, of course you haven't because it's expensive now and, you know. Yeah, and then they don't have a context. Right. And if you don't taste something, you don't have a... Con- I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like, uh, uh, I ate uh, the other night with uh, Richard over in Brooklyn. Oh, okay. And uh, we had a nice time, and we had a great time. But it's interesting when you look at wine lists over there, there's probably a lot of wine buyers over there that they haven't drank maybe some of the... They, they don't have an experience tasting really made, well-made California Cabernet. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, if you said that, they'd be like, What? Right, yeah. There is such a thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I've heard that. Right. Well, and, I saw an altercation last night, actually, at La Pole about that. Oh, really? Yeah. But the, just that subject. Like, people come in different angles on that right now, you know? Like, some people are like, yeah, I can, yeah, there's good things. And then other people are like, no. And that's. Oh, wow. That's I think in New York, you know. I tried to get it in between, but there was there was there was, was it pretty there hot? Was, there, was, there was too much drinking involved already. I tried. Oh wow! I was like, guys, let's circle back to Burgundy, huh? Look, Grand <laughs> Cruz. <laughs> I had to leave. Oh man! So what was it? Someone like saying, "Oh, there's nothing." You know, in you California. get a bunch of guys in the wine business together, and strong opinions happen. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that is intense. But huh? you get your East Coast, West Coast. You know, it's like Tupac and Biggie. You know, yeah. it's really that stuff never goes away. Yeah, it just manifests itself in different in different styles. You know, yeah. You're like, uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of really exciting things going on in California right now. I agree with you 100%. I was just out there, you know? I mean, the energy that I see there reminds me of, like, the energy of movements that are starting, like, with Arno Roberts or or Arnott Roberts, I should say, or, you know, I, I like Scolium Project a lot. I like Abe a lot. I mean, the here's the thing with Abe. I mean, it's amazing. He really is like the Pied Piper. I mean, he does a lecture, 80 people show up. Yeah. Huh? If, he, if I did a lecture on Freud... Aristotle and how that related to Soldera. I mean, my mom maybe might call in and ask me how it was going. I don't think 80 people will come. <laughs> yeah. I witnessed it. These people paid money. Wow. I was like, well, this is nuts. Like people are paying to hear about how Homeric hymns line up with uh, microbes and wine. I mean, what? What did yeah. you say? Like, <laughs> this is something that people pay money for? Yeah. People just want to be around him. Like people just want to soak that up. That kind of thing is powerful. That's not not going somewhere. Oh yeah, you know what I mean. That's going somewhere. So and, I, and, I think. And you know what? I wish I would have heard this conversation yesterday that you got to witness. Ah, shucks. Oh, the one yesterday. You could have I mean, jumped right in there. You're like, uh, you got the you got the crib notes. You're like, oh, okay, man. debater number one. Yeah, but you know, I think about it. There's some things about California, and this is going to be sacrilegious to say this sitting in Manhattan today. Um. But there's some things about California winemaking that's actually ahead of some of the things going on in Europe. What would be examples of that for you? Well, for example, I was in uh, Paris last year. Uh, Danette and I were there on vacation. And, uh, you know, to be a sommelier, 
to understand the wine, um, you also have to understand the winemaking, really, to, especially when things have, like, really shifts in winemaking style. So, you know, we have this big natural wine movement, you know? We have this crazy natural wine movement. And the thing is, some of the, the young wine buyers, if it be in Paris, if it be in Milan, if it be in New York, Chicago, um, they're not... They don't have enough context yet and they're tasting and they're really embracing some flaws. A movement more than that. Yeah. And they're embracing these flaws in wine. And um and the winemakers in, in, in Europe are doing the same thing. So for example, what I was gonna use as an example is like um so we were there for like uh five days in Paris, eating all over, and then we left and then came back. And um <clears throat> every night we went out, it was like and my wife's really, really sweet, but she'll tell me like Bobby, are we going to drink a sound wine? Is that really? Yeah. Well, she's, she's tough. <laughs> yeah. She's a tough palate. Yeah. You know what I mean? If yeah, you, she's you like, know, she's you got to like, serve her a good wine. Yeah. Right? She's yeah. like, are, are we going to drink anything sound tonight? Because every night you had these young Parisian sommeliers going, oh, have you had this or had that? And the funny thing is, I actually had someone serve me an, a macerated wine from Alsace. Oh, okay. Oh, boy, you know, not yeah. so many of those. No. Was that and, like Beaner or something? Uh, it was Bayer. It was oh. a wine from Bayer. And, uh, oh, okay. And it was, uh, the, the sommelier didn't know what was going on with it. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And, uh, and he didn't know who I was, and he didn't know that, like, I have a restaurant based on Friuli that actually knows a little bit about macerated wines. And Sure, sure. You've seen that movement happen yeah. in that region. And what was interesting was, he didn't understand it. And I don't think the winemaker who he bought the wine from understood it because the winemaker probably had never been to Friuli to ask those questions. Sure. The interesting thing about the movement in California is a lot of those people pushing the envelope also travel. Uh, yeah, I think that's really distinctive about the new wave of California. Just, they got out of Napa. Yeah. They got out of Dodge. They got out of Dodge. They've either gone and done stages places. The the wine world got smaller for them. They're really they've been, I can there's a lot of Napa California winemakers that I've talked to about Friuli that have been there. Is that so, true? Oh, Cuz yeah. it's not so common with Americans to go to Friuli. No, but the, you know the, I mean? but that scene and a lot of it because of Abe. You know, Abe's been going to Friuli for 15 years. Is that true? I didn't know that. Well, because he was at Luna. He, he was into, oh, right. He was, right. So Luna, John Consgard, people don't know this. I, I remember they did a, a partly macerated Pinot Grigio in 99 or 98. I remember that wine. So he was like really, uh, John Consgard was like a big Radicon fan. He's he's great friends with uh, Grauner. He's, he knows all wow, the people. He says that. it right. I'll make a note that he says it right. Maybe the only man in America who says the, the pronunciation right. Oh, of Grauner? Yeah, yeah. That's how you With say it. I know. I'm saying, I'm, I'm making a note of this. I'm saying it's not so many people you see who say it correctly. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, and, and so Abe really was into that too. And Abe goes there often still, you know. So there's, there's a lot of people there that have gone and seen that. And I think that really helps California winemaking. Yeah, I mean, I think you're really right that that is unique because you go to a lot of European regions and still today, you know, they may be to neighboring regions, but they haven't often been around the world. Yeah. Into different, I mean, sometimes, sometimes I'll do a stage in New Zealand or something, but quite often it is a little, still a little bit more for good or for ill, a little yeah. more homespun, a little bit more local. 
I mean, I don't want to go back in time and have Barlow get on the Concorde and travel around the world, you know? Like, yeah. I'm happy he stayed just who he was. For sure. But in other, in other realms, I'm like, wow, it's, that's interesting that you could look at it that way. I think it's really important, too, for, like, developing regions. You know, I was talking to Tegan the other day, uh-huh. Pascal Aqua, uh, who's a, for Turley, and he's a guy who's traveled a lot. And, you know, he kind of looks at the potential of Lodi through the lens of global because so when you're when you're defining what a region could be, I think it's it's helpful to have like global ideas in place as opposed to just what has happened there previously. Yeah. When, you know, when it's still trying to find its niche when it hasn't been a hundred years, or I mean, I guess it really has been a hundred years, but hundred years of really honed production. You know what I mean? Well, for sure. I mean, look what happened to Tuscany. Sure, Tuscany, forty years ago, <clears throat> forty-two years ago. Uh, Jean-Franco Soldera pretty much got the guys, you know, got his estate for what a, a tax deduction. I mean, it was like nothing. He got it for nothing. But it was people in Tuscany realizing, uh, uh, with really like the thought process in the '80s, the Sangiovese 2000 project, where they said, "Wait a second, we can have great Sangiovese here in Tuscany. We don't have to have. We don't need the." Merlot or, or, or Cabernet to make it great. But what did they have to do? They had to, they had to look outside of Tuscany, realize, wait, the Sangiovese clones that we might be planting are not the best for this vineyard. Plant the right things, the right, the right density. And now we can drink really, really great Sangiovese with no makeup. But it took looking out I mean, really in a weird way, you, it's sacrilegious to say this, but Tuscany was an emerging wine region. No doubt. 40 yeah, year, people don't realize this. 40 years ago, in 1966, there were less Brunello producers than there were producers in Napa Valley. No, oh, absolutely. And it took, they had to emerge. And, and in a way still are. Oh, I mean, yeah. With the, the recent, you know, grape variety ideas and, yeah. you know, maybe trying to change it. You know, some people want to change it and have more than just Sangiovese in there. And, you know, it's still a conversation yeah. in a way, you know, I oh. mean, I guess it's always a conversation. Like even in Burgundy, you're like, hey, maybe we'll do Pinot Fin. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's not always a set thing, but, you know, I guess that's what keeps us in business. Cause otherwise, you know, if there was no change from vintage wow. to vintage, I'd, I, you know, what would I be doing? Exactly. You know what I, mean? I mean, look at, and look at things like, look how much Piedmont has improved isn't it nice wow. where we are right now? It's, it's awesome. I mean, just opening up all ones, I'm I'm pretty happy. You wow. know what I mean? Like ten years on, yeah, eleven years on, but then going tasting it out of barrel, you're like, wow, or Whoa. or bote. You know yeah. what I mean? But like, but it was good. You guys yeah. are hitting it. I mean, not everybody. It's a big place, a big but, place, but a lot of people. You know, and really improved. And you don't have to use the word traditional, or you can you can be a Piemontese geek and love. At all. Well, there's a lot of flux on that. Yeah. Uh, what we would have called a firm divide maybe 10 years ago. You yeah. know what I mean? There's a lot of people going back one way or other, increasing, decreasing. Yeah. You know, I think. And, and it's amazing uh, tasting some of those wines with from the O1s and tasting them and seeing that back, the, it, because that was when it was raging. But there's some really well made, well made wine that we didn't know was that great and made. 11 years ago, 12 years ago, and you open up a bottle now, you're like, wow, fantastic. 
So for as long as I've known you, you've been a very measured, uh, I think very responsible and, and, and always set a good example, but we're going to ask you to do the opposite. What is your, what are some of the things that have frustrated you over, uh, uh, the course of what you've seen with wine and then with your own restaurant? I mean, let me ask you, is it frustrating not to get the attention sometimes that maybe a New York restaurant of even maybe lesser caliber than what you do? Uh, would get. I mean, what is what is frustrating to you about some of those changes in wine styles? I mean, if you could kind of, if you could just alter the map in some way and be like, you know, that would be nice if it weren't like that. What would the, what would those things be? So, meaning uh, wine style wise, what do I wish was was different? Yeah, yeah. or just your own uh, career as a restaurateur. I mean, what's frustrating to you? I remember one time you said, you know what, we have such great coffee. At, at our restaurant and and no we never get credit for it it's incredibly great coffee and we just never no one ever says hey frasca i mean are do those things happen for you well but you know it's interesting i, I will speak to that and i'm going to get in trouble for doing this uh, pete wells put that piece out he was really upset about the beard nominations sure yeah recently where he said you know look there's no new york restaurants on this list which is unfortunate because in a way, he had a, li- a, a point that there were some great restaurants that should have been on that list. Now, I don't, we, we don't know who's going to come out nominated because it's a long list. But look, there were also some years where there was like, if you look back through the ballots, and you know, no one can really call up Pete and say, uh, <laughs> you're wrong. I mean, you get in a lot of trouble. I'm going to get in trouble right now. But if well, you look at like from 2000- the five people who listen yeah. to the show, so. but, but if you if you uh, look at uh, two thousand five, I think it was uh, J- James Beard Foundation uh, uh, nominees for best new restaurant. That was a year Michael Mina opened Cyrus Michelin. It's closed, but it was a Michelin two star restaurant. Uh, A sixteen opened. We opened some great restaurants in Chicago. A lot of great restaurants open. There was not one non-New York restaurant. Is that true, really? Yeah. In the nominations? I didn't know that. Yeah, it was like, uh, I mean, there's great restaurants on there. I mean, I think you you had, you had Crew was on there. You had uh, Spotted Pig. Um, It was Crew, Spotted Pig, um, uh, Spice Market. Sure, sure. Well, it was such a hot opening. I don't know if you weren't around New York at that time, but God, everybody wanted to go down there. I mean, working at Danielle, it was like you were calling, asking if you could make reservations for guests. Like, hey, any chance you could get me a couple seats? Oh, no, not tonight. Oh, come on, man. I thought we were friends. That's right. Sorry to interrupt. So so going back to that, it's like, <clears throat> yeah, that's that's tough for a rest of America. Yeah. That. I mean, a place like Cyrus maybe could have used that help. I mean. For sure. You know. Or, I mean, and, and also, if you look at like. Landscape changers. I mean, A16 should have been on that list. You know, yeah. landscape changer. Michael Mino, awesome restaurant. Definitely had an argument to be on that list. Making uh, kind of an even different kind of format of menu. I remember yeah. he was doing the, like different plays yeah. off of things. And- Variations and all that. So that does happen in the US. Is like, it's kind of weird here. Because like, if you're in France, if you're in Italy, if you're in Austria, you can be a great restaurant in the middle of the country. Forever it's been that way. If you think about bra, bra for yeah. sure. I mean, I've been there, man. And I, I ate there. I actually, Thomas Keller took me there. That was cool. <laughs> awesome. 
Do you guys eat together a lot? I mean, was that a thing? We, he would take a couple of us. Yeah, I mean, it was awesome. Like, I mean, that was, meal was fantastic. Was that kind of a model for you? Like to take people out? Well, that definitely gave me an idea. I was like, I got so much of going to Europe with Thomas. That's like, great. You know? I didn't know that. Yeah, it was great. Um, I mean, knowing you for a while, we're not close. We don't hang out all the time. But I never hear you talk about him. So I, I actually don't know what your relationship with him was like. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's I mean, just never come up. Like, I mean, that was a defining moment. You I mean, to go eat at a couple, I mean, he took me to the fat, he took Danette and I to the fat duck and. Oh, okay. It was. Did you meet Ruben Sanz Romero? No. <laughs> he worked there for a while. Did he? Yeah. Yeah. It was a short period though. He hurt his back. So he had to leave the job. It was kind of unfortunate, but Oof. I mean, he's doing great now. So. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, it was, yeah. I mean, that was, that was great stuff. But if you think about Europe, you can be the greatest restaurant in that country, not in Paris, sure, or in Italy, you can be Del Pescatore in the middle of nowhere. Sure. How journalism is laid out in this country, that's not gonna happen. Matter of fact, you know, when I worked at the French Laundry, I used to, you know, as a sommelier, you hear everything, right? Because yeah, you're the sure. guy pouring wine. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, you, and you, I would hear these great chefs eat at the French Laundry before he had per se, and they, they're like, you actually think he'd get four stars in New York? Really? You think so? Yeah, people always talk smack until the stars until, arrive. Yeah. You know what I mean? Then it's accepted wisdom. Yeah. But until then, yeah. they're like, oh, I don't think so. But you know that, what I mean? Yeah. yeah that's that's like, what people would do. People so, do all the time. <laughs> so I think, I think it's, um, this is going to be hard to say, but I think it's harder to be a restaurant tour outside of a major market because you have to work so much harder. It's not conventional wisdom, but going back to the coffee deal. Yeah. We, eight years ago, I mean, what, what are you doing if you're in an Italian restaurant? You got to pull a great espresso shot. You got to polish your glassware. You got to bust your table. You got to slice prosciutto and roll out pasta. If you aren't doing those things, I don't care who you are, you're not a good restaurant. Well, eight, nine years ago, if you came to New York and ordered an espresso in most restaurants, what would it be like? It would be like that brand that starts with an L that I don't want to get a lot of trouble for. And it yeah. would be like in the cup with that brand on it. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it would, a, a, a with great no restaurant. crema. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And it would be a guy who has no barista training. Right. Back with right. the, the espresso machine. Miguel. Yeah. <laughs> Two orders. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And the guy's like extra packing it. Remember yeah. like oh, the yeah. extra pack? Yeah. Like, oh, let's put more in there. Like, yeah. Remember that? Because totally. I used to be that guy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you're like, you know, and, yeah. but that was coffee in a New York Times three-star restaurant not that long ago. Right. But if, you know, here you are, just a little simple thing like that. If you're working so hard, you never get any credit for that. No one, like, they couldn't even imagine. Wait, is They're, there actually someone doing something that right. we should be doing here? Right, right, right. But, like, also, journalists don't want to get into that speak because they want New York to be number one. Yeah. And then you can play around with Chicago and, but, I mean... Those Go are ducats. Give yeah. out some ducats. You give out some ducats. Yeah. yeah. But those are things that are, those are basic tasks and those need to be done. And and that's what makes a restaurant good. And, and do you think that you kind of surmounted that by building it locally, by kind of communicating your message locally and then having that kind of filter out? Or how did you surmount that? Because you, you know, you have a national reputation now. I mean, obviously you came with a national reputation for yourself. I mean, that, that couldn't have hurt. But now people know Frasca. 
people think of pizzeria pizzeria locale. So do you think you you beat that that system by building the local base or what did, what did you do? Well, I wasn't trying to beat anybody. I was just trying to, to be the best restaurant person I could be. And I wanted my staff to be the best restaurant people we could be. I'm not hating the player, I'm hating the game. Yeah. I mean, how did you beat the system? Well, you know, I don't how did think you we, break Vegas? Oh, so what we did is we just did our own thing consistently every night. Yeah. And as long as, I mean, you gotta work really hard if you're in a town of 80,000 people mm -hmm. to be busy nine years later, eight years later. And so our goal was, how are we gonna make this the best neighborhood restaurant in the world, okay? And we talk about that, like we, we gotta pull, it's all these basics. You gotta do those things first, and then you can do something else. And, and I, I think when we were doing it, and we do it every day still, we're not doing it because we wanna have national press, we're doing it because that guest coming in needs to have a great espresso shot. Sure. That guest coming in needs to drink delicious wine. That guest coming in needs to have a pasta that they couldn't do at home. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's that's. Was there a fealty to what you'd had as an experience in Italy? Did you say like, you know, this doesn't deliver on what we were eating there and we need to be true to that? Was that part of the drive? Well, actually, I, I thought part of the drive, I mean, Lachlan and I talk about this a lot with our team, is that um, we want to take a, a dish or take a style of service, if it be make it, making coffee, if it be decanning wine, if it be whatever, and contemporize it and make it a little bit better. Got it. So if if we're working every day for the rest of our career, hopefully... 100 years from now, two things are going to happen. I'm going to have Danette's shoe collection paid off. <laughs> and two, we're going to be a much better restaurant than we started at. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, that's something that's kind of weird here in America. Like here, we want to build out the restaurant, hire the best designer, and go for that first review, and then maybe be peaked. Right. And then kind of forget about it after. Yeah. The, but yeah. think about the great restaurants in the world that inspire me. If it, let's say Michel Bra. I mean, that sure. guy started as like, it was a, a bar down in La Yule. And I did he, not know that. Yeah. His mom had a bar. He was a chef. Uh, or Del Pescatore in, uh, in, uh, in Northern Italy. I mean, that restaurant was like a, a, like a fish fry place. It's one of the pinnacles of great pasta production you can see anywhere because it's not a leveraged restaurant program. Leveraged meaning taking a bunch of uh, either investors or whatever, building this temple out and then riding it from there. It's a, it's a building program. And, that, and that's kind of what inspires us too. Bobby, if you could uh, talk to a young sommelier that you haven't met, someone who hasn't had the opportunity to meet you, what would you say to that person because uh, we get a lot of young sommeliers listening to the show. If you could just give them a little bit of advice, core principles or just specifics, what would you, what would you reach out and, and help them with? Maybe the, the first thing is, are you a great waiter? Because everyone wants to go from like getting into the restaurant business to the MS program. You got to wait tables. And, 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 and so if you're waiting tables, you're becoming a good hospitality person. 
So, you know, hospitality is key. So humility and, and, and listening and empathy, those are all things that you need to be a great long-term sommelier. And empathy, because you need to understand what that guest is going through. If, uh, if they just drove up, like if you're in Boulder, if they just drove up through rush hour to eat at Frosca at a six o'clock on a Friday night and they got there on time, we have to be empathetic to that. They just drove through a snowstorm. As a sommelier, you need to do that. You got to be a good listener because it's not about your night. Your night off is Sunday night and you can do whatever you want on Sunday night. But those other five or six nights a week you're on the floor, it's all about the guests, period. And I think sometimes we forget that in our industry where like they think it's about themselves and mm -hmm. it's so not because it's it's got to be, you know, you got to care about the guests and 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 be okay with things that take time you know everyone wants to like do it all at once you can't taste that much wine to become great all at once you know you gotta let it happen come on bobby what if they put it all in the same glass hey bobby you've been a big inspiration to me from afar i always appreciate what you're about and your whole thing and i dig you a lot and i appreciate taking the time to be on the show thanks so much bobby stuckey of fresca food and wine and also pizzeria locale in colorado thank you sir thanks a lot all drink to that is hosted and produced by myself levy dalton aaron skella has contributed original pieces editorial assistance has been provided by bill kimsey the show music was performed and composed by rob moose and thomas bartlett show artwork by alicia tanoyan t-shirts sweatshirts coffee mugs and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L-drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.